Um, Lord Jesus, just want to thank you for Matt. We thank you for Anne. We thank you for their love for you and their love for this church and their love for the community. And I pray now that you would give Matt everything he needs to speak what you've been imparting to him for us all this morning. I pray that we'd have ears to hear whatever you want to say to us, that we would have completely open hearts, Mm. that you would speak through Matt, your servant, this morning. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Bex. Morning, everyone. Today is the second of two talks on the gospel. Uh, Greek evangelion just means good news, great news. And we started it last week. We're finishing today, two weeks. Uh, And the reason why we're doing this is because we are living in a meaning-making, storytelling, formational age. Anyone who's been around for the last year and a half will recognize that billions and billions and billions have been added to filmmaking, short-form, cinematic, uh, storytelling mediums. And even though I, for one, probably most guilty here of spending hours of my life watching incredible dramas, and it's not just the dramas, at the same time, we mustn't kid ourselves that they also inhabit certain worldviews and philosophies, and stories are really, really powerful. We say it's in Saviors over and over again, the story you live in is the story that you live out. And so it's really, really important that we take some time regularly as a church, as a community who worships Jesus Christ to ask ourselves, what is the story that we live in and how can we better live it out? There are all sorts of worldviews, philosophies, uh, ideologies out there. Here are just three that have been around for the ages but pop up in different forms that we we want to say that the gospel, the Christian gospel, isn't. Um, Number one, it isn't a sort of division between a higher spiritual invisible realm and a lower uh, material flesh and blood realm. Um, That has, like I said last week, I'm just giving a quick summary if you weren't here, everything to do with Plato uh, and nothing to do with Christianity. And so we want to uh, avoid that idea that um, that we live in a a lower form or a bad world of matter and that we're waiting to, uh, I said last week, drink Red Bull on the clouds with the angels, wait, wait to ascend to a higher plane. No, the Christian gospel is that heaven is here. Now, this is heaven. And it will unfold to greater and greater degrees and realities as we discover and explore more and more of the superabundant life of Jesus Christ. But the Christian gospel is that Jesus has come. He is present wherever two or three are gathered in his name. And that we can taste heaven now as the recreated new community of the restored, redeemed in him. Amen to that. So we don't believe in a divided higher spiritual realm or lower spiritual realm. Equally, we don't conflate everything into God. We're not pantheists. We don't believe that I am God, you are God, the wood is God, the trees are God, the world is God. That's pantheism. We want to avoid, we want to avoid an overly divisive spirituality where we have a higher spiritual realm and a lower material realm, but we equally don't want to go to the other extreme and over-conflate uh, the gospel and say that everything is God. That's not the Christian gospel. And lastly, just to throw out one, we want to avoid a sort of atheistic posture which would say, and I said it again last, I said it last week and I said it again this week, which would say that we are a random collection of atoms as uh, to the tune of our DNA, spinning around on an ever-expanding, infinitesimally small piece of cosmic dust that will eventually implode upon in, in upon itself and render all of our lives, our lives, and our losses ultimately meaningless. That's a very prevalent narrative or story that, if you've been around in the West, late Western modernity for the last 10, 15, 20 years, has really taken hold and gripped a number of people, and you'll see it manifesting itself in conversations, 
at the pub, in stories, books, literature, films, um, and it's a very powerful story. And I'm not saying that you can't hang a sort of body of science off it, because clearly you can, um, but it's a, it's, uh, I would want to say that one of our main objections is that there's no hope, and it's therefore miserable, and who wants to live in a story like that? The Christian gospel is a gospel where we can lay hold of hope, even within the grave, because Jesus rose from the grave. So amen to that. So the reason we're looking at the gospel is because we're living in a storytelling, meaning-making, formational age, and there are all sorts of quote-unquote gospels, things which present themselves, presenting narratives, as good news, but when placed against the Christian gospel are, in fact, false gospels. They're, They're gospels that we want to avoid living in, and otherwise we might be in danger of living them out. And we want to remind ourselves regularly, what is the story that we're caught up in? So three questions we looked at last week, really quickly going to run through them just as a summary. What's the gospel? Uh, Two questions we looked at last week. What's the gospel and what does it mean for us? We say the gospel is Jesus. And as we said last week, the distinguishing characteristic of the Christian gospel is it is primarily not a wonderful idea. It's not a fantastic philosophy or worldview. It is a person. It orientates itself around Jesus. And we said two things last week. Number one, that makes it incredibly simple. Jesus was a man. He could be known. He wept uh, when his friend Lazarus died. He sweated tears of blood um, through fear before he was crucified. He celebrated at a wedding. Um, he drunk wine. Uh, he, he knew people. He was, incent- he was a human. In that sense, the gospel is, is, is simple. And we can crystallize the gospel in certain Memorable phrases like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. That's the Christian gospel. And we said last week, really good one, just to pocket as a verse and wheel it out. Um, We also recognize that amazing theologians like Karl Barth, who wrote a million words on Jesus, crystallized the gospel down to Jesus loves me, this I know because the Bible tells me so. so. So because the gospel is Jesus... It's not primarily a philosophy. It's not a whole realm of books. It's simply a person that we can know. That is the Christian gospel. It makes it simple. We also said last week that it also makes it unbelievably mysterious, like unknowable, because in Jesus, uh, not only is humanity expressed, but also divinity. That the fullness of God, uh, we read in the New Testament, chose to dwell in the face of Christ. That the unknowable, invisible, completely other God, that's why he's God, chose to manifest himself in Jesus. And therefore the gospel is a mystery. That's why at the end of, we said last week, John's gospel, he says, well, all the books in the world to be filled with things uh, about Jesus, we still wouldn't get to the end of what it is to talk about Jesus. There is always more to say about Jesus. And therefore, the gospel is a divine mystery. And it's both and, not either or. I also didn't say this last week, but I just want to reiterate, the gospel operates on different levels. It operates on an individual level, which we're really focusing on last week and this week. What does the gospel mean to you? What does it mean to me? But the gospel isn't just an individual transaction between you and Jesus, or you and God, or me and God. That would be to reduce the gospel uh, down to something which is incomplete. It's true, that it has radical ramifications for who we are, how we perceive reality, and how we might live before God and in the world. But it's not the only thing that can be said about the gospel, because the gospel isn't just individual, it's global. In Jesus, we're told, in Galatians chapter 3, that all nations on earth have been blessed through Jesus. There is no longer the divisions that we like to draw between people, whether they're on account of ethnicity or socioeconomics or how they look, that actually in Jesus there something global has happened, that he is the 
firstborn of the new created family of God. And therefore, whether you define yourself primarily through your nation or through your work or through your ethnicity, dot, 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 you fill in the, gra- the gap. Actually, Jesus has done, done something of global significance that draws us together, not just with each other here on St. Saviour's, not just with the Church of England, but with the church capital C around the world today that stretches back in time and stretches ahead into the future. How amazing is that? But that's not, the, that's not it either. It goes beyond that. The gospel isn't just individual. It doesn't just have radical ramifications for our lives, your life. It's not just global. It's cosmic. We read that in Christ, all things... That's all things in the universe, the created order, are held together. We're told that Christ pre-existed time, that he was there with God the Father because he is one with God the Father and the Spirit at the dawn of time, at creation itself, and that he pre-existed creation, and that he is the God who exists from eternity to eternity. The gospel is cosmic. So the gospel is individual, it's global, and it's cosmic, but we're focusing on the individual part today because you've only got 10 minutes and I haven't got that much to say. Secondly, um, oh, so I just want to uh, whittle it down. What, what we said last week was a really useful way of thinking of the gospel conceptually would be to say that we are more sinful than we dare admit or acknowledge, but we are more loved than we could ever imagine. And we want to break that down. Sinful is a word that triggers many people in our culture today because it is associated with a kind of mean-spirited spirituality, uh, often institutional oppression and bigotry. Sin gets caught up in that kind of lexicon and that group of words and therefore can have unhelpful connotations. But we're just saying sin simply in the Bible is defined as a heart, this is Luther, a heart that kind of tends gravitationally or inevitably in towards itself. You might say centripetally, as I say, a, a, a pressure exerted inwards upon a central point, that sin has the capacity to just enable us, without even knowing it, just to orientate our lives, our thoughts, our minds, just around ourselves. And in that way, it can be quite subtle, because oftentimes it doesn't feel particularly dangerous or, or deadly. But when six, seven billion people on the planet begin to live their lives for themselves without knowing or even knowing consciously, you have a problem. And sin is just that. Sin is simply just a state or a posture of the heart. So we're more sinful than we could possibly acknowledge. But the other amazing good news of the gospel is that we're more loved than we could ever imagine. And we said that that does a double whammy. It means that we can resist, I would say, a very strong narrative today, which is that people can be the saviors of people. It's called the myth of human progress. That through our technological and intellectual abilities, which are immense... We alone have the ability to be the destinies and the masters of our own future. Does that make sense? So, you know, when we see incredible technology, we can fall into the temptation of thinking, actually, salvation comes through man, through our immense power and our gifting. But the gospel would say, no, actually, the problem isn't fundamentally your intellect. It's, it's a heart posture of sinfulness. And, and therefore, it humbles us before that narrative to say, let's resist the temptation of going the whole hog. When we see something amazing or use something incredible to think, wow, we're pretty impressive, actually. It's the sin of the Garden of Eden. It's when Adam and Eve took their hand out of God's hand and said, thank you for creating everything, but we're going to get it on for here. It's astonishingly arrogant. But it also does a double whammy on the posture that says, we are merely animals. We are merely dancing to tune our DNA. And, then, and ultimately, however many people might say, well, we live by the golden rule, do unto others that which you would have done unto yourself. We, we don't buy that, we would say in the church. We would say, actually, an ethic or, or spirituality of human dignity needs to run deeper than just you telling me that I should be kind to someone else just as they should be kind to me because you say so. No, the ethic of human dignity is rooted in the Imago Dei, that is to say the image of God, that you are created, you have the divine spark in you. 
You are created in God's image, and therefore every single person on the planet, whether able or disabled, whether rich or poor, whether whatever ethnicity they inhabit, whatever country they come from, whatever their story, whatever they've done, whether it's terrible or whether it's you know, impressive, actually every single person is of infinite value before God, and therefore uh, we resist the narrative that says you are merely an animal, or you are merely dancing to the tune of your DNA, and therefore you lack human worth. The Christian gospel does a double whammy on both those things. We're more sinful than we know, we're more loved than we could possibly imagine, and it's both and, and the gospel is Jesus. So that was what was the gospel. Secondly, what does the gospel mean for us? Just really quickly, it means revelation. It's something God does, we don't do. It's a gift we receive, not a right that we earn. Uh, we, 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 we would say that um, it's good news. Evangelion, the Greek word for gospel, literally means good news. That is something that has been done, not that there is anything that we need to do. We simply receive the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus. We simply receive Jesus into our lives. That would be the good news. So it's revelation. It's something God does, uh, not that we do. There's a verse in Psalm 36 that says, by God's light, we see light. In the light of God, in the light of Jesus, we are able to see light. We are able to see clearly. Not when we try really hard, when we study, when we learn loads of stuff, when we're really, really good, we might become enlightened. No. Through what God has done, through the light that he has revealed in Jesus Christ, through that, our eyes might be open, our ears unstopped to the glory and the beauty and the reality of the gospel. So it's revelation. Secondly, it's salvation. John 3, 16. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in his name shall not perish but shall have eternal life. Perish is the key word there. Literally mean preservation or deliverance from harm, ruin or loss. That means that the gospel is an essential part of our reality, not an additional extra. It's, the gospel isn't there to orbit around our lives to make us look shinier because we're better people. We should know by now in the church that we're not in the church because we're brilliant people. I, I, I don't know if that breaks. I mean, there are some amazing people in the church, but most of them are like me, very ordinary, very flawed, uh, very silly in lots of ways. Okay, and I don't mind saying that because the gospel isn't I need to make myself shiny and presentable before God and then I can come to the church. The, the church is the community of the redeemed, those who know they're lost and have been found, those who knew they were dead and have been made alive, those who know they've been scuffed up a bit and have nothing to bring but for the love of God and are, are saying yes to the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's salvation. It's a wonderful verse uh, in one of the Psalms. I can't remember it. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it. That's all we do at the church. Over and over and over again in our lives, we rediscover the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ by running into his name. When we're scared, when we're overwhelmed, when we're struggling, we learn that Jesus is a strong tower. He is a refuge. He is a fortress. His name is mighty to save. And we're not engaged in this enterprise of the gospel and proclaiming the gospel because we're trying to make our lives a little bit better, almost like putting it in a presentable place in our home with some shiny lights on it saying, have you seen the gospel to which I live? No, the gospel is something that goes deep into our hearts and reminds us that Jesus is a strong tower. And we need to run into his name over and over and over again and rediscover that power for himself. And lastly, oh, sorry, and then we just say daily prayer. We said last week, we repeat every single day in the Anglican church, Lord, would you make speed to save us? Would you make haste to help us? I.e., rescue us. Every day we pray that. It's the first thing we pray in the morning every single day in the Anglican Church to remind us that we don't save ourselves. Salvation comes only through the name of God. And lastly, the gospel is power. 
Um, the reason it's powerful is because it's rooted in God, not man or woman. It's not rooted in anything humans could have made. It's rooted in the name of God. And therefore, God is the source of life. Anything outside God inevitably is engaged in a process either like that or over time of death and weakness. But actually, God took the weak things of the world to shame the strong. On the cross, we're told that Jesus made a spectacle of the principalities and the powers, the things we call mighty and grand and powerful, and disarmed them, made a public spectacle of them and revealed them for what they are, which is things that cannot save, that have no power. And the gospel has power. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. You might be forgiven to think when you listen to me over and over again, and I'm really working hard not to use so many words, but it's not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. Kingdom of God is a matter of power. The gospel is revelation. It comes from God. Salvation, it's essential, not an added extra. And it's power because it comes from God. So today, really quickly for the next 10 minutes, no longer than 10 minutes, we're asking two questions. What does it look like to grow in the gospel? That is it. What does it look like to grow in Jesus? What does it look like to grow in God? They're all transferable because the gospel isn't a philosophy, it's a person. So what does it look like to grow in the gospel? And how can we grow in the gospel? What does it look like and how does it grow? And we heard so beautifully read just now by Mary in Psalm 1 um, that, that it's, we're given this amazing picture that um, it looks like a tree. What it looks like to grow in the gospel is a tree, and we're just going to spend a little bit of time thinking about what that means. Now, the Bible does give us spectacular pictures of dramatic change in God. One of the main pictures in the Old Testament that you see coming up time and time again is of a desert place, waste, barren, lifeless, and then overnight the rains come. And if you've seen Attenborough and grown up with David Attenborough on your screens overnight, you'll know what I mean because some of that footage that the BBC have captured in some of the most beautiful places of the world is incredibly dramatic that one day there was a desert and the next day there was an oasis of life and that is a picture we see a person called Saul who became Paul who wrote most of the New Testament and is probably one of the most influential people in the whole of western civilization and eastern civilization and global civilization he was walking along the road to Damascus one day as a zealous Jewish man an incredible religious leader really impressive man and he encountered the life-giving power of Jesus Christ a vision and his life was never the same to the the same again. So what does it look like to uh, grow in the gospel? It can look incredibly dramatic, but most of the time, it's a tree, i.e. it's unspectacular, it's not particularly dramatic, it takes a while. Someone says the tree is like this, it bears its fruit in season and its foliage never fades. It just produces fruit year on year and it never looks as though it's gonna, uh, its leaves are going to drop. It's unspectacular, it's undramatic. It's a picture of what we call organic or biological growth. And there are three words that we associate with organic or biological growth, and they are it is invisible, it is incremental, and it is inevitable. Biological growth is invisible, it's incremental, and it's inevitable. And we're just going to take one of each of them really quickly, one by one. First of all, growing in the gospel is, in, is often invisible. The growth happens invisibly. If you say to, um, you know, you don't go up to a kid and say, oh my goodness, I can see that you are growing. You, you don't see them grow before your eyes. But if you 
have nephews, nieces, or kids of friends for a while that you haven't seen for a few weeks, especially if they're very, very little, or even a few years, when you see them, oftentimes we will say, my, how you've grown. Wow, you've grown. You didn't see them grow, but you know they have grown because it's happening invisibly, and it's the same thing with trees. Anna and I planted a tree in a little postage stamp uh, square space of grass outside our house about seven years ago. And when we planted it, it fitted in the back of our two-seater Peugeot 406 that I inherited from my dad. It, it was tiny. It was a little sapling. Now, it's so tall, we potentially have a bit of a problem because it's blocking out all the sunlight. It's beautiful, but it's grown over seven years. Growth is invisible. Galatians 5 says, the fruit of the Spirit, i.e. the fruit of the gospel, seven things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, and gentleness. And it's not that you get one of those bits at a time. Like a piece of fruit, they all flourish together. It's what we call symmetric growth. And when you're in the gospel, you will encounter growth in all of those areas as a fruit. And um, yet you won't see those things until you engage in relationship with other people. And then often you can say, see or contest, I wonder if I'm growing in the gospel. How kind have I been in my words? How gentle am I? How loving I am? And you may not see it overnight, but you'd hope that over the years we would recognize we're becoming more and more like that amazing picture of the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Galatians 5. More loving, more joyful, more gentle, more disciplined and, 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 uh, and, and more kind with our words over time as an indication of the invisible growth that is happening within our hearts. Jesus says in Matthew 15 to his disciples, it's not what goes into a person's mouth that makes them unclean, it's what comes out. I.e., it's not what you eat or drink that makes you unclean. The words that come out of your mouth reveal the, the state of your heart. And therefore, really good little test case of invisible growth of the gospel is just checking yourself. What, what am I doing with my words? What's coming out of me in my relationships? And how does that indicate um, some change? Last thing on the invisibility. It means that it's unspectacular, undramatic, and often underwhelming. We live in a world of the spectacular. You know, the surface level, the presenting me or I uh, through, I'm not going to go, you know, social media and all that kind of stuff, but a world that places a huge amount of freight on your, pre your presenting self and is zero interest in your heart and the stuff we can't see. And therefore, according to the gospel, there are thousands and millions of people in the world now who in God's eyes are extraordinary and spectacular people but you would never, ever know. And I just want to read you this quote from a book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Um, and the, the picture here is that a group of, um, uh, a group of people have uh, traveled to the edge of heaven. Bear with me. It's a kind of imaginative piece of literature. And there they see this woman. And um, they see that people are honoring this woman in heaven. That people are like, shouting out praises to her and saying, well done, you're amazing, you're a hero. She's, she's, she's gathering a huge amount of joy and energy around her. And so one of the travelers looking at this woman says, is that, I whispered to my guide, is it, is, is she amazing? And not at all, said he. It's someone you'll have never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith and she lived at Golders Green. But she seems to be, well, a person of really particular importance. Yes, 
She is one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in this country, that's in heaven, and fame on earth are two quite different things. But who are those gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers uh, before her. And who are all those young men and women on each side? And here's the response. They're her sons and daughters. Well, she must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. And every girl that met her was her daughter. The abundance of life she had in Christ from the Father flowed over into them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, it is like when you throw a stone into the pool and a concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength, but already there is joy in the little finger of a great saint as this lady to waken all the dead things of the universe. Growing in the gospel is invisible, and we need to get good at recognizing that in the unspectacular, undramatic, invisible heart growth of the gospel in each other and in those around us, that we don't get caught up with, with, with being tempted to measure growth through external success. Secondly, it's incremental. It takes time. I'm going to say it again because we're a bunch of Londoners. And many of us, not all of us, many of us live very, very busy lives. It takes time. It takes time. I looked up a few facts about an oak tree this morning. Here are some fun facts. An oak may live for a thousand years, although 600 may be more typical on many sites. All oak are classed as ancient from 400 years onwards, although many will have ancient characteristics from around 300 years. Typically, a veteran oak is 150 to 300 years old. I then Googled, what's the oldest tree? I don't know if this is true because I'm not sure how much you can trust facts from Google, but this is what it threw up. This is amazing. The Great Basin Bristlecone Pine, found in Northern California, has been deemed the oldest tree in existence, reaching an age of over 5,000 years. If an oak tree can take 400, 500, 1,000 years to grow into its fullness, and Jesus is wanting to say something important to us, or God is wanting to say something important to us about growing in the gospel, one thing we can grasp is it's incremental. It takes time. And yes, we see dramatic change in Saul's life. For most of us, we just need to develop patience. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit of God. It takes time. And we need to get used to taking time. John, New- John Newton, the slave trader, who even when he had come to faith, still, uh, to his shame, kept slaves for much of his life. So when we sing Amazing Grace, it's always worth remembering that he's, he's, he's declaring truthfully an amazing experience of salvation in Jesus Christ, but we also know that he hadn't yet come to the fullness of the realization that the act he was engaged in was evil and contrary to that gospel, which had already saved him, if that makes sense. It took him time to recognize that what he was engaged in, what he was profiting from, was evil. But John Newton, even he recognized at the end of his life that he had changed over time. And he said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. All of us should be able to say, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I know I long to be. And one day when we're in the fullness of the redeemed heavens and earth, where there's no suffering and no pain, and you and I will take on characteristics, if you you go with C.S. Lewis, that we will look 
that if we could see ourselves right now, we might very well, down, very well be tempted to fall down and say, my goodness, I'm looking at an angel. But we're not there yet. But we should be able to look back on our lives and say, I've been on a journey and I can genuinely witness to discernible change in my life. By the grace of God, I am what I am. But there's more. It's incremental. It's incremental. And lastly, growth in the gospel is inevitable. Uh, you can't reverse growth. You don't start with a tree and end up with a seed. You know, silly illustration. You start with a seed, a tiny little seed, and it has to grow into um, uh, a tree. Listen to this. A minister was in Italy. A minister was traveling in Italy, and there he saw the grave of a man who had died centuries before, who was an unbeliever and completely against Christianity, but a little afraid of it too. So the man had a huge stone slab put over his grave so he wouldn't have to be raised from the dead in case there was a resurrection from the dead. This man had decided, I just put the most powerful and heavy stone over my grave. I'm not interested. He had insignias put all over the slab saying, I don't want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. Evidently, when he was buried, an acorn must have fallen to the grave. So a hundred years later, the acorn that had grown up through the grave had actually split the slab of stone, and it was now a tall, towering oak tree. The minister looked at it and asked, if an acorn, which has the power of biological life in it, can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? When we encounter the gospel and we live in the gospel, which means when we encounter Jesus and we live in Jesus, we're brought into the presence of the love of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Change is inevitable. It's not optional. You can't do anything about it. There is a power at work in our lives that is driven by God and not by us. That's why we see in the gospels a group of rough and ready and ill-educated fishermen being formed into a group who become Jesus' disciples and found the church of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God gave the growth. And we know in Mark 4, because I go on and on about it, that the gospel is like, we go out and we scatter the seed, but then we go to sleep. And in the morning, the garden's grown. How? We didn't know. God grows it. And we have got an amazing picture, if I may, of that happening in our midst through the garden out there, literally, and the mission hall. And if we have eyes to see it, we should be celebrating in advance that which God has already done. There's been some hard work. People have dug up the ground. People have fundraised. People have given hours and, and their time and their expertise and their skills to it. A bunch of people painted the front of the building last week. The garden's forming. There's going to be kids working there today. But guess what? There's a power at work in this story that is completely separate from all of the work of the hands of you and I and the people. And it's an unfolding grace of God that we're seeing. It's the gospel of Christ. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I also just want to mention Jeremy, previous vicar, and someone we dearly love. He used to be the vicar at this church, has built a bug hotel which he's going to install just around the side of the hall, I think sometime later today, is even today, isn't it, Dan? A bug hotel, a little haven. So it's not just that people are going to find a home in St. Saviour's, but bugs are too. How beautiful is that? So that's what does it look like to grow in the gospel? It looks like biological growth. Invisible, incremental, inevitable. Secondly, how do we grow in the gospel? Well, we'll notice in the psalm that the tree is planted by water channels. So growing in the gospel just means rooting ourselves in the water of life. 
every day. That's all it is. That's all we're called to do. Jesus encounters a woman by a well and she says, I'm looking for water. And he says, yeah, but the water that you're going to get from this well will run out. But I have water that will never run out. So the last thing I want to say is that the reason that we're able to experience the life-giving water and the power of Jesus Christ and grow in the gospel is because he didn't. Jesus, on the cross, thirsted. And he was given a sponge of vinegar and he got a spear in his side. And he thirsted and had no water so that he might release through his death and resurrection a river of life, underground wellsprings that you and I and the church of God can tap into all day, every day and all night, every night that we might grow into the fullness of the gospel. I'm going to land with this. Anna is my wife and her grandfather was an amazing man called Brantz. And Brantz was someone who day in, day out, sort of flung his feet out of bed in the morning and said, this is the day the Lord has made and I will rejoice in it. When the Second World War hit, he was a conscientious objector. But after a couple of years, he realized that as he saw his mates heading off and, and some of them giving the ultimate price, which is their lives, for, uh, for that battle for freedom, he decided he could no longer, uh, he could no longer um, not be involved. And he had a, it was a very painful conversation with his father, who wanted him to remain a conscientious objector, and it's a sequence of very painful letters, and it took them a long time, if ever, to get over the damage that I did when he decided that he would sign up to the RAF. Now, over the course of the Second World War, he became the top night-fighting pilot, as in he shot down more German planes than any other pilot in the war. I don't say that as a sort of, you know, isn't that amazing, because there was real death there. He actually said after the war he always aimed for the wing and not the undercarriage because he knew then it would have more of a chance of the person surviving. But the reality of war is the reality of war. But he ended up with this extraordinary hit count. He was the top night fighter pilot uh, in the Second World War. And at the end of the war, the king, who was giving him, he got a number of medals, um, the king said to him, I'm looking forward to tracking your career in the RAF. And he informed the king that he was leaving the RAF. And the king said, well, they're very lucky who you're going to, I'm very lucky who you're going to go and serve. And he said, who is that? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm actually just going to go and serve the Lord. And he spent his days with his wife, Barbara, living in a, a, a house in Oxford, running camps for inner city kids, um, Christian camps, to all sorts of seaside resorts and all sorts of silliness happened, like stupid games and all that kind of stuff, but drawing people into the love and the life-giving power of the gospel of Christ. And here's what happened at the end of his life. At the end of his life, he was in a, a, a people's home and he suffered uh, a form of dementia. He suffered from memory loss. But the people looking after him testified that very frequently he was found humming with a huge smile on his face, with bright eyes, hymns or old Christian songs that he'd learnt by heart across his life. Really simple hymns or songs. But he spent the last years of his life spending most of his time sitting in his chair humming to himself. And I thought, when we're asking the question of how, what does it look like to grow in the gospel, how to grow in the gospel, I wanted to finish that just to make it real, but to say it is unspectacular, it is invisible, it's incremental, 
But it's inevitable. And over time, Jesus says, what you sow, you reap. What you plant, you will harvest. And in that picture of Brant's as a sort of 90-plus-year-old man, you could tell a spectacular, heroic war narrative about his life. But you know what? Everyone who knew him and loved him didn't tell the stories of the war. They said, here's the man who knows Jesus. And he's known Jesus every day of his life. And you wouldn't find that being reported on. But it's the most incredible witness, amazing testimony to the life-changing power of the gospel, which is the goodness of God as revealed through Jesus Christ. So I'd love to pray now. Can I invite everyone to stand? That'd be wonderful. Yeah, perhaps the band could come up and, uh, and play some chords in the background. That'd be wonderful. And Lord, I want to ask that the words of Matt Seymour would fall away now, but the word of Jesus Christ would settle. That, that anything I've said that's unhelpful or not quite true or hasn't quite hit the mark, by your grace and your spirit, would fall away. But I pray that which is of you would settle in our hearts and our minds and nourish us on this Sunday.